You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Our show features our team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. And they'll help you make the most of your money while cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. You'll get clarity on strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. Listen to Nerd Wallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, this is Doc G, and today we're going to help you earn and invest in your future by making the right decisions today. We have Cody Sanchez on the show to talk about contrarian thinking. He pretty much changed my life. I was an average doctor making an average salary in an average clinic. It was my own business, but nothing really special. And this one day I got on the phone and talked to a colleague and he blew my mind. You see, when I entered that regular practice and I started that regular business, he did something completely different. He finished residency and went onto the internet and started answering questions on Quora. And then he built a website, Search Engine Optimized, to such an extent that if you put into Google Miami and doctor, his name would come up. One of the top search results. And so he built a practice where travelers who had come to the Miami area would get sick And then they would Google for a doctor and they would find him. And so he would travel to their hotel. He would bring his medical bag with his medicine and antibiotics. He would see them and treat them. And he would charge them $1,000 per visit. And the reason he got away with it is most of these were wealthy travelers from places like Europe. And they all had travel insurance. And that travel insurance mostly paid for whatever was done. So while I was roughing it out in the office, running from patient to patient to patient, barely having enough time to get everything done, he was seeing two to three patients a day, enjoying himself, moving at a leisurely pace and helping people who actually needed him and making two to three times what the average physician made. That conversation changed just about everything for me. And after that, I decided I would leave my practice and start a whole new venture. Unlike any I had ever seen before, he changed my life. He taught me how to zig when everyone else zagged, taught me how to go left when others went right. He taught me how to be a contrarian, and it made all the difference. 
Cody Sanchez is a reformed journalist, former employee of Vanguard and Goldman Sachs, and a self-labeled contrarian investor. She is the managing director and partner at Entourage Effect Capital, a firm focused on investing in the legalized cannabis industry, as well as co-founder of Unconventional Acquisitions and founder of the Contrarian Thinking Newsletter. Cody, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. What a great story. I am so excited to talk to you about all things cannabis and contrarian thinking, as well as buying businesses. But first, I want to start by talking about legislation recently came up in the House of Representatives decriminalizing marijuana on a federal level. My understanding is it either didn't pass the Senate or get to the Senate, but with the change in power, the new administration, it's quite likely that cannabis may be legalized federally. Do you think it matters? Yeah, I mean, it definitely matters on multiple levels. I suppose it matters upon where you sit. If you're an investor investing in cannabis like we are, then that's a binary trade, which means you have a big, huge upside in the three to four X our money, meaning we try to make three or four times every dollar we're given turns into maybe 10 times every dollar we're given. So it's huge from an investment standpoint. And then from an access standpoint for society, it's a great thing for those that increasingly use this plant as wellness and as medicine, and of course, recreationally as well. Many people listening to this might not realize that marijuana is legalized in a number of states, but not federally legal. And that causes all sorts of problems transactionally with how people pay for it on a state level, as well as it creates fear for customers, as well as businesses, to the extent that the federal government could one day come after them, even if it's legal on a state level. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, it's been a pretty incredible ride. I started investing in cannabis in 2014, and it was a little bit of a wild west. We had very few states at that time that were actually legalized. And now one in every three Americans lives in a state with legal access to either medicinal or recreational cannabis. So we've seen a total change. Now, you say you've been involved since 2014. It was the wild, wild west. Tell me about that story. You walked away from Wall Street and ended up at Entourage Effect Capital. And in fact, I saw on your website, you say my transition from Goldman Sachs and traditional finance to cannabis all started with three words, generational wealth creation. How did you make that jump from Wall Street into where you are today? Yeah, you know, I don't think I ever grew up uh, with my parents saying, maybe one day you could be a drug financier, (laughs) Cody. So that that wasn't the natural path. But what I've always been pretty decent at is finding the sort of truth behind the noise. And so I think that's what good journalists do, right? You're always looking for, let's get the numbers behind the narrative, or let's actually find where there is an arbitrage opportunity. I call it contrarian arbitrage. So where does everybody think that this is the truth? And you've realized that there's some margin of error there. And so in most of my career, I've built businesses that were a little bit on the, on the leading edge. And that allows me not to be smarter than everybody else, but it actually allows you to do better if you're not as smart. Because when, when a market isn't as you know, f- competitive and when you don't have all the sophisticated players in them, then you actually have a better opportunity to grow. It's, it's much easier to be a small fish in a growing pond than a giant fish in a shrinking one. And so I was at the time, I ran a large international investment business focused on Latin America. And so, you know, that business, I'd gotten into it because that market hadn't been built out yet. There are really only two other big players 
And I built up a business from nothing to a couple billion in that region. And we did it because we realized like, oh, wow, there's only these two players, you know, three or four, maybe getting in there. They're very comfortable. They all do business the exact same way. In fact, all the people who run the businesses jump from one company to another. We're going to come down there. We're going to totally do it differently. And instead of you know, trying to fit myself into the US financial system, I'm going to go to Latin America because there's a lot more opportunity and chaos there. And so I built that business. And then I was looking to exit it because margins had come down. And I'm sure, you know, medicine and and healthcare, you've seen this perfectly. It's like, you've seen a compression of margins and an increase for doctors, at least an increase in insurance premiums, you know, and a lot of people creeping into the, to the total take-home dollars that you have. And so the same thing was happening in Latin America. And when that started happening, I said, okay, this is probably a good time to sell the markets at all time highs margins are decreasing. We've, you know, we're, we've built a pretty sustainable business. So I exited that business and was looking for the next sort of arbitrage opportunity And the next emerging market, I stumbled into cannabis first as an investor. Usually I put my money into something and then I think about, can I build something better than what exists? And so I saw that opportunity in the space and finally took a leap in 2018. So four years of tracking the market, investing in varying companies, sort of seeing what was actually, you know, stigmatized and what was wrong about the industry or what was good. And then finally took that jump. A few points based on what you just said. One is you actually started your career as a journalist, which kind of makes sense, right? Because you were good at finding the inside story and doing the research for these, I guess, what we would call inefficient markets. You use the word arbitrage. But in a sense, what it sounds like to me is you were really good at finding early markets that were still very inefficient. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, I don't think I've ever been great at finding them completely ahead of the curve. Like I got to see a few people do it. I've got to triangulate a trend. Then I really think about things a lot. My whiteboard looks like a crazy person. (laughs) And, you know, and then I put some money to work. I have a few misses. And then finally, I'll jump in. But that was exactly right. I saw this opportunity because as a journalist, all you're really good at is, is asking questions. But what I've realized, you know, and, and my newsletter, Contrary and Thinking, we talk about it a lot, is that you know, curiosity is really one of the core tenants to invest in. The people who are very egotistical and think they know everything don't do very well as investors. The ones that ask a ton of questions and are perfectly fine saying, I don't understand this. Can you dig into it for me? They're the ones that avoid, you know, credit default swaps and mortgage-backed securities in 2008, right? So you mentioned curiosity. Cannabis was the field you eventually settled on We talked about inefficiencies, but what else made it such an appealing business for you? Well, I think the thing about cannabis that's fascinating to me is the size of the overall market, right? I mean, you have in the US right now a $20 billion legal cannabis market, but there is a $50 billion illicit market. So if you pair those two together, that's actually pretty fascinating from a total current addressable market. The other thing that's fascinating is that usually with tech, you know, with with new technologies or emerging markets, you have to teach people how to use them, right? The internet came. What did people say originally? Nobody's going to use that. That's ridiculous. (laughs) You know, it's funny now, but in retrospect, it's like Bitcoin, ah, a bunch of fraudsters, right? So that's how we treat new technology until 
And until at one point it stops becoming technology and it starts becoming everyday usage. We don't see a wheel as technology, but it really is. It's just been normalized into society. The fascinating part about cannabis is that most people know how to use it. You know, they've been using it before. So you don't have to have this time period, which is usually 10 plus years of teaching people how to utilize and how to maximize an emerging market. And instead, they already know how to use it. They just never had access to it in a legal and safe way. And there is a little bit of a learning curve, definitely in the various different types of strains and, you know, pathways you can utilize. But for the most part, people knew about this market. And the part that really intrigued me was, you know, I always want to go where there's the least competition. And so in this market, we right now today have more cash sitting on the sidelines than we have ever had as a country, you know, but by extreme multiples, completely disregarding inflation. And, and so in traditional company investing or stock market investing, it's very expensive and frothy. But in cannabis, because of the legal status, actually all the big boys are not in that space. We're one of the biggest fund families out there and we're $200 million. You know, that is super interesting to me because usually, you know, there's sort of four top types of leverage, right? You have first labor, then you had capital, then you have code, you know, engineering code, and now you have like an audience media. Well, usually capital gets to any new market first. So whoever has the most money can capitalize on it. In cannabis, they can't because of the illicit status still. And so that's our opportunity. Two quotes that pretty much drive home two of the points you just made. One is you say the goal with cannabis, in my humble opinion, is democratization of access to the plant, which gets to that point of you were just saying that the market was there. It was just illicit before. So allowing people to get access to it, actually, the market is already formed for you. It's just a matter of providing them that easy way to get there. Another thing you said is cannabis will be one of the largest wealth drivers we've seen. Do you still stand by that? Do you still think that's where the big money is right now? Well, I think it is one of the largest wealth drivers in our generation, for sure. So I think, you know, you have you have multiple things that have been massive wealth generation drivers, such as, you know, engineering technology in our generation, then you have decentralization and blockchain. So all of those things are going to be infinitely impactful on society. The part that I find interesting about cannabis is you do not have to have gone to MIT uh, or know how to code underlying software in order to create wealth in this space. And the rest of those, I mean, yes, you can create wealth by investing in Bitcoin, obviously. There's many people that have done it, but it's a speculative asset that doesn't actually cash flow or derive actual you know, revenue from it. And so you're really you're, you're betting on a on a commodity in essence. It's a, it has a limited amount that is outstanding, and the price continues to go up because demand outstrips supply, right? And so that's a speculative asset. Now I'm not saying that it's not beneficial. It is, but not everybody can go and code their own underlying you know blockchain or create their own ICO. There's some complexity there. Cannabis is called weed for a reason. You know, the, it, it's it's more complex to, to grow than that. But it's certainly, you know, it's a CPG product. It's an agriculture 
product and it's something that is already created. So you don't have to be the next Elon Musk to do well in cannabis. And so that part I think is really interesting. And you can actually analyze a company just like you can in any other industry because you're just looking at, is it profitable? Does it have good margins? Do they have enough cash flow behind them? So from that perspective, I think it is a massive generational wealth creation event. And I think the really interesting part is that the institutions are not in it yet. And so anytime you can be in front of the institutions on a trade, you know, that usually ends up well for you. Do you have strong feelings about whether the path to wealth is more on the owner versus investor side? I think these days, as long as you're part of the shareholder class, which are those who own, you know, equity assets, ownership in a company, somebody who has their their time is not directly tied to their output, right? Like you were talking about, if you're a doctor and you make $500,000, but you got to be there every day to make $500,000, you're not part of the shareholder class. You are, you're renting your time out essentially, right? In my opinion, in, in cannabis, you want to be one of the two. You either want to invest in it and have equity in it and have some asset allocation in your portfolios, or yeah, you want to be an owner and actually make a play in the space. But you know that that does mean that you have other opportunities you can't run with. So for a large majority of the people, it's going to be that they'll be investors and the good owners will certainly benefit hugely. But I don't think it's that dissimilar to, to you know, the venture capital space overall, you see a lot of the big venture capital firms made a slew of positive return portfolios from investing in the best tech companies to start with. I think cannabis will be similar, except, you know, it's it's not infinitely scalable, all of the underlying investments like SaaS t- uh, tech is. Before we move on from cannabis, I'm just wondering, we've talked about the economic concerns. Do you think there's a social movement aspect to this also? Oh yeah, I mean cannabis is interesting from many perspectives. I mean, I'm I'm a Latina and and I spent a lot of time as a human trafficking and drug smuggling journalist along the US Mexico border. So, you know, I see firsthand or have seen firsthand what the war on drugs has done to communities, especially in Mexico. I mean, if we think we've had it hard in the US, I always say, you know, go live in Juarez like I did for a few months and see how they've done. So there's no doubt about it that there is a social aspect to this and that, you know, minority communities have been unfairly penalized for, for you know, utilization of cannabis or distribution of it. And so, you know, I think that's really important that a lot of that is included in the things people are doing to, to change this industry. So you see a lot of focus on black and brown founders, you see a lot of focus on what's called social equity. So, you know, giving ownership to disenfranchised communities or tax revenue from it. And, but, but I think it's really crucial that we remember that in order for things to be sustainable, they have to be profitable. And so that some activists, they don't, they don't like that. Yeah, an interesting story, probably unrelated, but I live in Evanston, Illinois, and this last year or two, they decided to actually pay reparations to Black families in our community, and the way they decided to make the money they were going to give towards reparations was by taxing the cannabis industry here in our town. So it's an interesting look at social change and social justice through the cannabis industry. That's fascinating. I didn't even know they did that. Yeah, no, no, I, I, it's, I've never heard of that anywhere else, just where I happen to live. Let's move from cannabis 
to this idea and the evolution of you as a contrarian thinker. Can you look back? I mean, you were in the midst of Wall Street. What sparked this interest in contrarianism with you? Yeah, well, I think first and foremost, it is being a journalist. It's trying to find you know, the truth amidst the noise. And the only time you make money in investing is if you see something that somebody else doesn't. Because largely, you know, when I was at Goldman Sachs and some of these other firms, parts of it can be a zero-sum game, right? In order for me to buy something, you have to want to sell it at this price, right? So there's always a trade on both sides of the equation. And so you had to have some unfair information advantage in order to, to profit and to do well. And so I think it started from that. And then I really got curious. I remember specifically one of my CEOs said at the time, you know, you just, you get rich quietly. And he said that to me and, you know, I, I kind of chuckled and I think he meant, you know, be humble about it and don't have flashy things. And okay, that makes sense. But as I thought about it, I was like, no, nah, that doesn't sound that much fun. Like I think instead we should all try to get rich together and everybody should try, you know, if we can to create wealth together and that seems like a lot more fun to me. So at that point, I started thinking there needs to be a better way for us to communicate the ideas that nobody taught us in high school or college what they should have. And that, you know, why did it take me becoming a human trafficking journalist and going and building these businesses in Latin America and then finally buying my own businesses to realize that we are not taught any truths about finance and wealth creation in traditional schooling. And I, and I kind of got annoyed at that. I, I thought to myself, like, okay, I've been, you know, investment banking, alternatives, trading, asset management, like every aspect almost of, of finance. And why was I just learning at, you know, I'll say I was probably at the time, like 28 or 29, about applying this to my own finances and actually creating wealth for myself. Nobody was talking about the shareholder class then. They were just like, shut up, get to work, you know, from six in the morning until 10 at night and keep going. And so I think that's when I got interested in contrarian ideas because I realized nobody has your best financial interests at heart except yourself. And if you go to traditional sources to learn about finance and wealth creation, all you're going to learn about is things like invest in a diversified portfolio of stocks. And that is never going to help you create real wealth. Why do you think? I mean, we all go to high school and college. We take classes. Some of us even take finance classes. Why isn't this stuff being taught? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I think first and foremost, our education system is it's just so flawed. It's unbelievable. But I, I think it always typically stems, in my opinion, from your bureaucracy of things. So the more bureaucratic, the more red tape, and the more rules and regulations we have around things, the less innovation we have, and the less truth we can tell. And so, you know, I saw a great graph today, actually, that showed the average cost of inflation of varying sectors across the US economy. And the ones with the most expensive inflation numbers were like hospitals, college, medical care services, childcare, housing, food and beverages. And why is that? Because those are the ones that have the most government intervention in them, the most subsidies behind them. And thus this it's this it's this perverse incentive that essentially means that we have less innovation And the government does us a disservice by actually trying to do us a service because they don't understand economics and how math works. And where you actually have the the cheapest services 
in the most deflation, you know, meaning they're more affordable are things like technology and software and cell phones and clothing. Those have all had massive decreases in cost. And so I think it's the same thing with education. You know, you, it doesn't really benefit schools, first of all, if you're thinking from a college perspective, to go and tell you to go create your own businesses. It doesn't benefit them for a long time. Why? Because their biggest sponsors for those schools are like the Bain and the McKinsey's and the, you know, iBanks and that. And then they can go and say that the people who graduate from our college make 170K right off the bat, as opposed to instead, the people who graduate from our college make $0 for 10 years because that's what it takes to become an entrepreneur and then become a trillionaire. And so I think there's just perverse logic across most of this. And for a long time, people got rich quietly and they didn't share what they were doing. And and I can't blame everybody for that because there are a lot of people that don't like wealth and they look down upon people who have created wealth and they think that, that you know there's something wrong with them. And so why share it if people are also going to demonize you? So those are the couple things that I think are happening there. But the beautiful part is, you know, now people are wise to it. Like Wichita State is $37,000 a year. Should Wichita State cost $37,000 a year for a graduate when in fact you could get the same commentary and, you know, maybe even better technical analysis from like Khan Academy and online classes on m and I don't, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, let's talk about some of your contrarian beliefs. Right now, we're talking about higher education. It used to be commonly held that without higher education, the path to wealth was severely obstructed. You don't believe so? Well, I think that's a good point. I think there are lots of people that will tell you you don't need to go to college, right? And that college is bad. I I wouldn't say that. I think, in fact, college really is just allowing you access to a network of other people who are more likely to give you jobs, cash in the form of fundraising and access. And that is probably one of the larger wealth drivers out there. But what they don't do is really teach you anymore. And and that pains me to say, my mother was a special education teacher for 30 years and I love school and learning. I mean, I spend an obscene amount of money every year on continuing my education in varying ways. So I am totally cool with paying for it. I think the problem is, and it's become a little bit of a cliche, but they really, they do teach you how, they do teach you what to think and not how to think. And so they don't, you know, and and even if you use case studies, the Socratic method, which for so long, you know, was sort of the the golden pinnacle of grad school and, and even undergrad at the Ivies, they, that, that method is backward looking. So, you know, and largely applies to big companies. So I, you know, I went to Georgetown for my MBA and, and I did a PhD following it. And I can tell you firsthand that I learned about hmm, 5,000% more from starting and running and creating my own businesses than I ever did in school. And I'm very appreciative for Georgetown's network that they gave me. And that check on my resume is probably priceless, but what they actually taught me could have been done so much better by saying, I'm going to give $10,000 of your tuition. And while you're going to school, try to start a business, see what it's like to actually implement payroll software and what it means when the government taxes X and Y and Z and what it means when employees don't show up at work and learn what it actually all means. It reminds me of the introduction story I just told you, what I got out of my MD in some senses is probably similar to what you got out of your MBA and PhD is they taught us how to be employees. 
And while that has its merits, it doesn't really prepare you for the real world of being a business person. That's probably one of the reasons why lots of doctors fail at running their own practices. Oh, I think that's such a great point. And, you know, to be fair, there's so much, uh, I don't know very much or anything, let's be honest about being a doctor and what it would take. But, you know, you you all have to have such a high level of knowledge on a varying degree of items with a high risk, right? Like you could kill somebody if you do it wrong, right? And so I, I do think it's hard because they're trying to cram all of that in, but they want to probably do a huge service to doctors by actually adding some business classes into the mix and having like many accelerators inside school. But I think that will all come. You know, now people are wised up and contrary and thinking, you know, each month we do a very intensive breakdown of a different way to earn unconventionally, largely passive-ish investments, if at all humanly possible. And we go deep into specific ways for you to do that. And what I've loved about it is that once you can see the way to make money in businesses, you can't stop seeing it. So it's just the gift that keeps on giving. You can be a medical doctor and then also invest in biotech because you're like, oh, I can see how this is going to work in this instance. And I'm a medical doctor, but I'm also going to invest in this, you know, ancillary practice over here in anesthesiology because I pay this guy, look at my PL, I pay him more than anybody else every single month. Why don't I own part of that? And so that is the, that's the beautiful part, I think, about business education is it's not really about business. It's about how can you see the world and see the code that is written in dollar signs in everything that you do. And then making money just becomes a game. And the more money you make is a tool for the world you want to create. In the first half of the show, Cody Sanchez and I talk cannabis. After the break, we discuss buying small businesses. But first. You know what? I love our meals from Factor. My son started getting them about a year ago when he needed a quick alternative to meals on the go. But where we've really enjoyed them is we've been remodeling our kitchen. That's right. We've had no access to our kitchen for the last few weeks. And some nights we just had no idea what to do for a meal. That is where Factor came in. We would just pop the meal in the microwave and two minutes later we'd have a fantastic meal. You can do the exact same thing, and there's tons of variety. Choose from a weekly menu of 35 options, including Calorie Smart, Keto, Protein Plus, or Vegan and Veggie. Also discover more than 60 add-ons every week. These are chef-prepared meals, and let me tell you, they are delicious. No fuss, no mess. You just put it in the microwave, and two minutes later... You have a meal. This is tailored to your schedule. You can customize your weekly meals with the flexibility to get as much or as little as you need. Head to factormeals.com slash earn50 and use your code earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code earn50 at factormeals.com slash earn50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. All right, so most of us know the bad news already. If you were using Mint as a budgeting app, it has shut down. But the good news is there's something better, and it's called Monarch Money. I started using Monarch Money myself about five months ago, and I knew immediately 
that I liked it more than any other budgeting app I had ever used. For one, it focuses on collaboration. This is easy to share with your spouse, your partner, your financial advisor, and it's aspirational. Not only can you look at your current budget, but what do you want to buy? What do you want your goals to be? You can focus on those in Monarch Money. It's the next generation of personal finance apps. Monarch is a top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Furthermore, you can create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. Again, that's monarchmoney.com slash E-A-R-N. What I like about this app is it's intuitive, easy to use, quick to sign on. It's collaborative, as we talked about. It's customizable. The idea is you can use this app the way you want to use it. And the reason why is the Monarch Money team is customer-focused. They are focusing on you, me, and all the other people who want to use this app to live a better financial life. After trying out Monarch Money for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash earn. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash E-A-R-N for your extended 30-day free trial. Let's talk about other forms of contrarian thinking. I used to feel like real estate investors thought they were contrarian thinkers. In fact, a lot of them went out and just started stacking rental real estate. Nowadays, maybe that's not the way to go about it. Well, I mean, I think the real estate market's at all-time highs. I was just looking at some numbers this morning. I mean, we've got real estate at all-time highs, stock market at all-time highs, corporate bond yields at all-time lows. We've got Bitcoin at all-time highs. Like It's a hot market out there. So you really do have to be specific and strategic about every investment you make because there's no rising tide that's going to continue to lift all boats, in my opinion. I mean, we did just print another $2 trillion, so that'll do the trick for a while, but eventually the music runs out. And so I think from a real estate perspective, there's still 100% ways to do it, but you got to be smart. And I get very nervous anytime anyone is short-term speculative. Terrible, terrible way to live your life because it will eventually revert to you. So I, you know, when people ask me, so what's your exit strategy? It's I'm like, it's death. You know, I want to hold <laughs> things until I, I can't hold them anymore because I'm not around. Now I want to pass them on to my kids, if at all humanly possible. And the way to do that is through cash flowing businesses. So with real estate, as long as you don't overlever, and if you stack a portfolio of investments where you know you can cover that monthly you know, percentage continuously and don't go up so high, then yeah, over any 10 or 20 year period, you're probably going to be okay. The problem is people get short-term greedy and so they overstretch. So you know, one of the country and thinking pieces I'm working on right now, which is fascinating, is how to buy real estate at auction. And what I've realized is we're all lazy, us humans. So, you know, we want to just like go on MLS, buy the place, get a renter in it, run along. But we don't realize that that's so far down in, you know, the actual return stack. So if you think about real estate, you can have it where you go and knock on the door of the delinquent person whose like yard is kind of derelict. And you buy from them, which would be the highest return you could do. Or you go all the way down to the very end where you buy on MLS, somebody who's deciding the market's hot and they want to sell. And the money's always found where there's a little bit more risk and a little bit more difficulty. 
And so I, I, I agree with your point there. I think you have to be really strategic. Yeah, we're talking about contrarian thinking, contrarian arbitrage, and efficient versus inefficient markets. And as you were saying at the beginning of this, you know, the real estate market is hot. Stocks are at all-time highs. Bonds are at all-time lows. What this suggests is some of those inefficiencies that we look for as investors just aren't there the way they were. So we have to be real picky and choosy in what we get ourselves into. Let's talk about your other venture, unconventional acquisitions. While real estate may be at an all-time high, what we are noticing and something you talk a lot about is buying already formed businesses. And especially in a time now of COVID, when many businesses are floundering, this may be a time for us to jump into the buying business game. Yeah, well, the one good thing about the world we live in today is that interest rates are at all-time lows. Like We probably will never see them this low again in our lifetimes, I would assume. And so with that, that means that there's a lot of free money around. And so you know, that, it's always good and bad. You've got to be careful anytime you take on debt, 100%. But with, with debt, it's just another form of leverage. You know, I really like to talk to people about leverage because people think about leverage as oh, that's just, I have something, I'm going to borrow more on top of it. That's what the financial firms did. They got greedy, that totally screwed them and the economy. Yes, that's all true. But that is not the only type of leverage. What's true is that the most powerful quote, I think, when it comes to wealth building in the world is, you know, give me a lever and a fulcrum on which to place it and I can move the the world, which is Archimedes. Because leverage is really just how can I put the least amount of possible, least amount of work in possible to get the highest output? And so with buying small businesses, what's amazing is a couple things. One, small businesses, you can use SBA loans, the Small Business Association loans. And, and the SBA loans essentially are very low rates for you to actually buy out a business with the government's help. The government's trying to help small businesses. And so the, the interesting part about that is that small businesses, by and large, have the least competition of any asset that I've seen to purchase them. So real estate, very hot. Commodities, very hot. Stocks, Robin Hood, out of control. So anywhere where there's less competition, then you know you get a better deal. So I always say fall in love with the problem. When there's less competition, the deals are better. And anytime there's problems, as long as you have solutions, you can make a ton of money and have a lot of fun. And so with small businesses, there's about 12 million small businesses for sale in the US right now. Only about one in 11 will sell over any 12 month period. So there is a huge oversupply of small businesses and these small businesses cash flow every month. We're talking about profitable businesses that make thousands to tens of thousands to millions of dollars a month. And these businesses, what I find fascinating is, think about it this way. It's like, you know, us young millennials, maybe we have a dad who's a doctor like you, right? And your kid, and you want your kid to be a doctor, then take over your practice. And the kid's like, dad, nope, I want to go be a YouTube influencer. Like, forget about your practice, right? And then it's like, well, so what happens to dad's business? You know, dad never really thought about selling his business. He didn't even know there was an option. A lot of times those businesses just get shut down. My uncle Eb did that. He had a $5 million revenue plumbing business, 
just wound it down because he had no idea, didn't go to you know college, didn't even go to high school, built it up from nothing. He just wound down the business. He missed, they had about $2 million in profits. He missed probably a $6 million payout from just winding down the business. He had no idea. And that happens every day in the US. So what I try to push people to do is to think about these are just an asset like anything else. It's like a bond. It's like a house. There are things that are different. Don't get me wrong. It's more work in some aspects, but you can cash flow on small businesses, unlike almost any other area of the economy right now. And you can buy them at massive discounts because there's not enough, but there are not enough buyers out there. Talk about some of the other environmental aspects that make it a good time to buy a business. You mentioned that there are people aging out of their businesses or retiring. You mentioned that there's a glut of businesses. Anything else about today's environment that makes it kind of time for a buying spree? Yeah. So you said it perfectly. So a couple different things. One, we have thousands of baby boomers retiring every day and anywhere from about Two to 10% of baby boomers own a small business. They have a very high percentage ownership rate of small businesses. So we have hundreds of new businesses coming up for sale every day or getting shut down every single day. So we have this massive move from the baby boomer generation out of their businesses. Why? They're looking to retire. They're scared about COVID. You know, they just are getting older and want to slow down a little bit. They want to go on to their next venture. So that's one really big transition. And the other big transition is that, you know, we have had probably for the first time ever in in the U.S. lifetimes, it's easier than ever and cheaper than ever to start a business. And so now you have a lot of founders who may have already started a business or two, and they are realizing there is a market to sell them. And so they're going from, you know, one business to the next because they're ready for the next adventure. And so those, you know, couple of things lead to you being able to get really unfair deals in your business acquisitions. So we have a lot of budding entrepreneurs listening right now. Some of them would argue, why buy a business? Shouldn't you start your own? What do you tell them? First, I would say entrepreneurship is <laughs> it is one of the most highly regarded and also highly difficult jobs out there, especially from a return standpoint. I mean, the average entrepreneur in the U.S. makes $47,000 a year salary. So $47,000 a year isn't huge, but it's especially not huge to work 24-7 like entrepreneurs do. And in fact, most small businesses that are started or startups that are started, the entrepreneurs don't pay themselves for the first three years. So you are starting the right to earn $0 for three years when you start a business on average. That's okay. But a lot of times we do it because we want something else. We start a small business because we want financial freedom. We start a small business because we hate our boss. We start a small business because we are not passionate about what we do right now. We start a small business because we can't find a job. But what we really should be doing instead of a startup is saying, why wouldn't I go buy and then build up a business? And so it is so much easier to be able to create financial freedom if you already have cash flow and revenue. You don't have to find a product market fit then. You can go buy it. And so, you know, a perfect example is, you know, we had a couple of students go through our our sort of educational materials on this. And, you know, one of the first ones, Mary, she she was working in a job. She didn't like it. It was in the accounting profession. Her boyfriend was actually in sort of house home services, HVAC, um, plumbing, that sort of thing. And so she used his knowledge in that area where he was actually a technician 
And together they bought a business and Mary is great at accounting and running the finances and he knows how to actually do the work on an underlying business. So, you know, she went from making, let's call it $75,000 a year. Do they have a business now that does something like $300,000 in profit? And so if Mary had started a business, there is no way that on day one, she would have $300,000 that she could start paying herself annually right? And with buying a business, you can do that. And especially because you can use something called seller financing, which means if I went out and bought your doctor practice, how small businesses work is from a valuation standpoint, if you make $100,000 in profit, right, that you take home, on average, if your business makes less than $5 million in revenue, that means your business is worth, worth two to three times your profit, So you have a $100,000 profit, I pay you $200,000 to $300,000 for your business. What's fascinating is you might be saying, Cody, love you, but don't have $300,000 lying around to throw at a doctor practice and that I know nothing about. The great part is you don't have to. You can go to these business owners. And so let's again with the doctor reference, you can go to the owner of this doctor practice and say, hey, I want to buy your business. Of course, you're going to look under the hood. You're going to make sure the business is good to buy. But you say, but I don't have $300,000. How about I pay you over the course of three years, one third, one third, one third payout, and I pay you $100,000 each year for three years. I'll pay you from future revenue and you'll get the $300,000 for your business. And then the, the owner might say, well, you know, that doesn't work for me. I really want, you know, I don't know, X amount up front. Well, then you just, it's all a negotiation. So you say, okay, usually in negotiating, you can do it two ways. I always say you can have your price, but my terms or my price, but your terms. And so I always really want my terms. I would rather pay you four times for your business, but say, hey, I'm going to pay you four X for your business over four years. And I'm going to do it based on milestones of how much money we earn. So the beautiful part is nowhere, you, you don't get to go buy a house from somebody and say, listen, I like your house. I'm going to take it tomorrow and I'm going to pay you over the next four years on it without a mortgage. I'm just going to do it direct with the owner and you're going to give it to me and that'll be great. And if I don't like your house, I'm going to pull back this amount of money, this amount of money, this amount of money. doesn't work. But in buying a business, you can actually do that. So all this sounds wonderful. And I'm sure there are many people listening right now saying, okay, I buy what Cody Sanchez is saying. I like her contrarian thinking. I think now is the time to buy a small business. How do you go from knowing nothing about small businesses to the point of actually being able to buy one? How do we jump into this market? Yeah, well, first I would say is go to go to howtobuyasmallbusiness.com and on there, there's an email list and you can add yourself to the email list. That's totally free. In that email list, you're going to start getting a ton of emails with specific case studies, ideas, examples on how to buy a small business. And the next thing that you can do is you could follow us on YouTube at Unconventional Acquisitions. And on there, we walk through every kind of business deal you'd want to look at. And you can actually break that down. And when you register on our website, you'll also get something called the five mistakes, the five most common mistakes for first-time business buyers. And so it'll kind of break you down exactly what not to do to start a business. But the beautiful thing about this is it's really sort of nine parts. There are nine stages to buying a business. And it's, it's not uh, complex. It's just a process that you have to learn. So it starts from realizing there's an opportunity, 
all the way to negotiating and closing the deal. And if you learn about these nine steps, they're not Cody's special, unique secret <laughs> sauce. You know, they're, it's how we do it in private equity and M&A all day long. So this is just learning what the big boys on Wall Street have been doing for a long, long time and applying it to small businesses. Eventually, I think this space will get commoditized just like anything else. And in the future, you'll have marketplaces that are very similar to MLS with an extremely efficient market that works. But right now, to your point, like you talked about in the beginning, hugely inefficient market, great arbitrage opportunity, and another emerging market. So we've talked about cannabis. We've talked about buying small businesses. What do you think is the next huge thing of the future, if different from those two? Is there anything else big coming down the path that we just haven't seen yet? Well, I think, I mean, I I always like to look where people actually put their money. They put their money where their mouth is. And so, you know, for me, my biggest exposures are to cannabis. My biggest exposures are to buying small businesses. I have some exposure to real estate. And I also hold a lot of cash right now. I have some in the stock market, but I've really pulled that back. I think the most important things to watch for right now is watching for inflation and just diversifying your income streams. So anything you can do right now to not be completely in the stock market and not be completely in real estate is probably a good thing. Inflation is tricky. And you know, there's a saying that, that inflation is a little bit like pregnancy. You never just get a little pregnant. <laughs> once, you know, once it starts accelerating, you really got to watch it. And so that's the biggest thing I'm worried about today is that people with these Robin Hood accounts are trading like crazy or buying real estate everywhere and, and they don't realize that they need to diversify a little bit. So I'd be looking for things on sale that cash flow for me so I can weather whatever storm may be coming. And I forgot to ask if you are interested in investing in cannabis, is there a simple place for people to start who know nothing about it? Yeah. Cannabis is a tricky beast. I mean, I would go to ArcView Group. Full disclosure, we own that we're an investor in ArcView, but ArcView Group is for uh, first-time investors into cannabis. And so it's a community of people that all get together and talk about how to invest in the space. I think that's great. If you go to entourageeffectcapital.com, we have a website and a blog that you can follow along with. But I'd just be, I'd be thoughtful on that market. There are certainly public stocks that you can follow and invest in, and many people are doing that. It's a little difficult to trade. So that market is still pretty inefficient, and people should be thoughtful when, when entering. Well, Cody, I wanted to thank you for coming on the show. Certainly that conversation I had with that physician talking about different ways to practice medicine really introduced me to the idea of contrarianism, what you call contrarian arbitrage, to look where other people are not looking, to look where the inefficiencies exist. It definitely changed my life, and I'm glad you've come on to talk to us on Earn and Invest about it today. Tell us, if people are interested in learning more about you or getting in touch with you, what's the easiest way for them to find you? Yeah. Um, well, I think go to contrarianthinking.substack.com, or I think, let me try it right now. I think if you just Google contrarian thinking, it'll be one of the first, yeah, it'll be one of the first blogs that pops up. If you go there, it's free. You can you can read those pieces. They come out weekly. There's probably a hundred of them on there and get some ideas. I try to answer all the questions in the comments. So if you have any questions, throw them at me. And then we're launching something called Contrarian Cashflow, which will happen in, and depends on when this comes out, but let's call it next month. 
And that will be really fascinating because it'll actually give you a playbook on how to capitalize on some of these ideas. So typically I kind of give you high level tactical what's happening where the opportunity is. And now because I I am worried and I want more people to diversify their income streams, we're going to hopefully give you ways to do it yourself. This has been the Earn and Invest podcast. On behalf of myself, Doc G, I wanted to thank Cody Sanchez. That's a wrap. Hey, everybody. Have you been enjoying the weekly podcast on Monday and Thursday? Well, if you like the conversations we're having at Earn and Invest, I just want to remind everybody that the conversation continues in our Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash group slash Earn and Invest. There we talk about very similar topics to the ones that you hear here on the podcast. We talk about personal finance, about the Financial Independence Retire Early community. Occasionally, we delve into politics. It's really a place for you to come and be part of our community. That's facebook.com slash group slash earn and invest. The other thing is I've been doing a lot more Facebook Lives. So I've been getting on most Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays and just talking about whatever is on my mind for that day. Usually I'll talk for about five minutes. It might be about something that's in the news or something going on in my life, but just a chance for you and I to talk one-on-one or one-on-many, so to speak, about what's happening in our world today and what's happening in my life. I really enjoyed this conversation with Cody Sanchez. It made me think a lot about contrarian thinking. Where do you put your money? Now, the typical thinking is that you put your money in your stock, in the stock market, or you put your money in real estate, and you leave it there. Not for days or weeks, but for years and decades. But is that thinking ever wrong? It's something I really contemplate often There is a great deal of speculation that stock returns, equity returns themselves, are going to be low over the next decade or two. And there's also this idea that maybe there is a real estate bubble and that property prices will go down and that will have a lot of openings, especially for people like me who own property in the cities. Maybe the pandemic has changed things to such an extent that people are moving out of the cities and no longer want to rent in those areas. Cody talks a lot about contrarian thinking. She talks a lot about efficiency and arbitrage, this idea of when everyone else is zigging, That is the time to zag. What are the investments that are undervalued that don't have a huge market, but that are cash flowing? In her case, small businesses. So there are millions of small businesses out there held by baby boomers and others who are looking to get rid of them. These businesses cash flow on a regular basis, and there just aren't a huge amount of buyers. So this might be a contrarian idea, an opportunity that people are not taking advantage of. And when you don't have people taking advantage of the opportunity, prices tend to be low. Listen, it's really comfortable to say, I'm just going to leave my money in the stock market. I'm just going to keep on investing in properties But maybe now is the time to expand our options. I know that there are a lot of people out there trying to provide mechanisms of investment that are atypical, that are not just equities and property. There's a lot of people out there crowdfunding different opportunities 
There's a lot of people trying to get in on early IPOs. It's really a time when we're trying to find places to put our money that aren't in the basic stock market and property places that we've been putting them before. And it, it really is a conundrum. It's a conundrum for people like me who want to keep their investments simple, right? I like this idea that I put my money somewhere, I park it, and I never think about it again. It's a little anxiety-provoking to think that maybe I'm going to really have to do my due diligence and start looking at other types of investments, things that maybe I'm not as comfortable with, which means a lot of studying and learning for possibly higher returns. The other possibility is that we hold with what we know and we accept the fact that maybe returns won't be as great over the next few years. Like you could leave your money in equities. Maybe you want to be more stock heavy and less bond heavy and just accept that as opposed to returns being 8 to 10%, which historically they've been, maybe for the next bunch of years, they'll be 4 to 6%. And that just might be all right. I don't think there's a perfect answer for everyone. I know some of us will want to keep our money where it is, while others will want to pursue these things like small businesses and other atypical type of investments in order to get higher returns to make up for what's going to be happening in the stock market. I think either answer is correct. The idea is to go into it eyes wide open. If you're going to invest in something new or something different, you have to understand it. You have to do your due diligence. You have to understand the players. You have to understand the market. You have to know what you're getting yourself into. Otherwise, you're just putting your money in a place of rank speculation. And we all know that there's a difference between investment and speculation. Speculation is often all or nothing. It's usually short-term, and most of the people who really get into it don't understand what they're really doing with their money. But that's the thing about us, the listeners here at Earn and Invest, our community, we're much smarter than that. I'm not saying that we won't sometimes make bad investments, but hopefully we'll do it with our eyes wide open. We'll do it intelligently. And when we fail and when we lose money, we'll learn from it. And maybe all that's that we can ask of ourselves is to learn every day to get better and better and to make good choices for our future. Thanks for having me. That was a blast. Yeah, that was a lot of fun. I I hope you feel like we were able to tell your story and get a lot of your ideas out there. Really interesting subjects and things. uh, I think people need to hear this right now, right? Because I'm so glad a lot of people feel like and I, I am a big fan of stock market investing. A lot of people first don't realize, as you said, you like want to put it in for life, right? Yeah, exactly. It's not the kind of thing you want to do for five or 10 years, especially not now. But I think also my community has gotten oversold on real estate. And don't get me wrong, I own real estate. I love real estate. Um, but there are other opportunities and other things to consider. And as markets go, there's definitely more of a saturation level than there was 10 or 15 years ago. Oh my gosh, isn't that true? I mean, I wish I would have piled on in 2008 more than I did, but... Yeah, um, that's when we actually bought, we bought four properties and we bought them all right around then. We bought a bunch of foreclosures. Um, 
And yeah, I mean, I'm, it's not a huge part of my portfolio. It's more of a diversification ploy just because I was so stock heavy as well as, you know, human capital heavy on being a doctor and making money that way. Oh, yeah. Um, but yeah. Tech moves fast. So keep pace with the Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes every day, this podcast will give you a quick overview on everything you need and should know about startups, new tech, regulations, and more. Listen to TechCrunch Daily Crunch now, wherever you get your podcasts. That's TechCrunch Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. You care about your money. Of course you do. So why aren't you listening to SoFi Daily? This podcast will keep you updated on the latest news in the stock market and how it could impact your financial life. Stay on top of what's happening. Listen to SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's SoFi Daily wherever you get your podcasts.